You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I got something I want to talk about to you. Welcome to another edition of Communication Mixdown. Hello, I'm John Langer. We may have been in lockdown due to the coronavirus for the past two months, but social media has been in overdrive. And it's possibly no exaggeration to say that there's never been a time when so many people around the world are actively posting to social media. Our guest this week on Communication Mixdown would probably be arguing that pandemic-related social media engagement can be seen both as a blessing and a curse. Axel Bruns is a professor in the Digital Media Research Center at Queensland University of Technology, and he's been analyzing the use of social media during the COVID-19 crisis. I spoke with him by phone last week in his garden in Brisbane, where, as you'll hear, the bird life got rather boisterous. Thanks very much for being on Communication Mixdown, Axel. In your research, you've been investigating the critical role of the social media and how it's playing a part during the COVID-19 outbreak. You've pointed to the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic has actually created the conditions for what you describe as an infodemic. And I wonder, to start with, could you explain what this idea of an infodemic, what it, what it actually means, and broadly, how is it connected with social media? Yeah, the, the term actually was used by the World Health Organization as well, who kind of pointed out that alongside the pandemic, we've also got this infodemic. And really what they mean, I think, with this is that in addition to the actual virus, of course, going around and, and affecting people, there's also a lot of dubious information, misinformation, disinformation being shared about the virus itself, uh, how it's spreading, what we can do to protect ourselves against it, where it's coming from and so on. So in, in many ways, the idea of the infodemic is that this is also a danger to people because people might see unsourced information. They might see uh, all sorts of conspiracy theories or stories about, you know, what, what remedies they might be able to take to, to protect themselves against the virus. And that actually might cause direct harm to them as well, just as much as the virus does. And of course, there is a, um, a metaphor here as well that this kind of information is spreading in a, in a viral kind of sense in the way that we're, we're using it when we talk about information spreading via social media and via digital media more broadly. So that's also part of this story, that in some ways we, we kind of have to flatten the curve of the spread of misinformation and disinformation just as much as we have to flat, flatten the curve of the, the spread of the virus itself. Now, my understanding is that the infodemic is not just confined to, you've talked a little bit about the the connection with social media and so on, it has a broader reach and has to do with the blizzard of information that we're exposed to on a daily basis, much of it pulling us in very different directions. I was wondering if you could expand on this and maybe give a few examples. Yes, yeah, certainly it, it reaches well beyond social media. And in fact, there is a, 
an interplay, if you like, between social media, mainstream media, uh, the role of celebrities, politicians, journalists, and so on as well, because in many ways it's prompted ultimately by the fact that, especially early on, there was very limited information about the, the virus itself, about how it was spreading, how bad it was, how it was transmitted, what we could do against it, and so on. And whenever you've got this kind of information vacuum, of course, people are trying to fill it. People are trying to work out for themselves. Well, is this affecting me? Is it a danger to me or my family? Uh, what can I do to protect myself and so on? Um, and uh, they search for whatever information they can find. Now, at the start, when you don't have much information, of course, you, you might then be tempted to go for some less reputable sources, for some more dubious information, for anything ultimately that you can, you can find that seems to give you some hope, I guess, that uh, you, can, um, you can protect yourself, that this will be over at some point. Um, now, what, we, what we've seen in, in our research certainly is that, particularly early on when there is that kind of limited information out there, um, people were um, sourcing uh, all sorts of um, information from all sorts of sources. They were passing it on as well to inform others. And that might be quite harmless in a sense for them. It might just be their their way of saying, well, I've just found this bit of information. Others should find out about it as well because it might help them. But even innocently, uh, you might be passing on misinformation. You might be passing on disinformation that is that is going to harm people ultimately. Just uh, just to go on and and talk about the, some of the research that you did early on. I, I, it's 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 a mere two months, six <laughs> weeks. You can't really talk about it historically as early on, but uh, in in your research on social media and the pandemic, you noted something which I thought was quite interesting. You called it a panic spiral, and I was wondering what you meant by the panic spiral, and give us an example of how this spiral manifested itself, particularly the social role that media plays. In, in many ways, yes, it goes back at, at first to this idea of the information vacuum. So people just try and find information to fill that vacuum, whether or not that's correct or not. Um, so they dig out these these possibly unfounded rumors about where the virus is coming from, what to do about it, and so on. Um, and some of these then reach larger audiences, become prominent enough that um, uh, they're possibly also picked up by by some particularly social media users with larger followings, uh, celebrities, um, politicians, particularly on the fringes and so on. Um, uh, and that amplifies them to a point where mainstream media are, if nothing else, uh, also reporting about them, probably not endorsing them necessarily, but certainly picking them up just to say, hey, this, this celebrity or this politician is now pushing a particular story. Uh, again, we've seen this obviously at the at the very high level with with politicians like Donald Trump, uh, who's been uh, putting out a number of these sorts of uh, ideas about how of where the virus might be coming from or what to do about it. And uh, of course, the more they're being these kinds of stories are being picked up by uh, by politicians or by others with large audiences, and the more they're being reported in the media, the more that feeds back again into these fringe groups where they originated in the first mm. place. And they they can then say we've been kind of validated by this. Look, Donald Trump is now talking about the thing that we've been talking about a month ago. Uh, we must be onto something. And so they, they can add on to this. And, and that then becomes a sort of self-reinforcing spiral of conspiracy theories, of, of just mis- and disinformation being spread 
and gradually it becomes more and more legitimized. It, it now is possible to talk about the idea that the virus originated you know, from some lab in, in, in Wuhan when there really is no evidence whatsoever that this is the case. You have been doing some research more recently on a coordinate. you called it a coordinated dissemination of conspiracy theories related to the pandemic. What were you investigating here and why did you call it coordinated? What were you, what were you trying to investigate and what were you finding? Um, so the, the the work on the coordinated uh, dissemination of these sorts of theories, I need to say, is, is largely driven by my colleague Tim Graham, who really receives uh, the credit for all of this. Um, but what he's been looking at, what we've been looking at in our in our centre more broadly, um, is any evidence of um, coordinated activity. And by, by that we mean activity that that is very unlikely to happen in an organic way. Um, when we see hundreds of accounts on Twitter, for instance, all uh, retweeting the same content within seconds of each other or, or posting the same links within seconds of each other, that's quite unlikely to occur organically, just, just randomly. Um, uh, when they do this on an ongoing basis with new content day in, day out, uh, again, within very brief seconds of each other, then again, that makes it more and more unlikely that this is just an organic random occurrence. Um, so this is the sort of evidence of coordination that we're looking for. Um, uh, multiple accounts that don't necessarily seem to be connected with each other, all posting pretty much the same content or retweeting pretty much the same content uh, within very, very short timeframes of each other um, to a point where it, it, it begins to look inauthentic. Now, there's still a very slim chance that some of this might simply be random, but the more you see it and the more repeated that behavior is, the less... Uh, that chance is, and, and the more likely it is that this is um, coordinated by whomever and for whatever purposes, but a coordinated activity that's trying to push particular um, conspiracy theories or just particular information uh, for whatever reason. Is there any, uh, have you had any conjectures on if there is this coordination, who would be doing the coordinating? It's a little bit difficult to to be entirely certain because there are, um, masks within masks, if you like, in, in some of these cases. There's some of these accounts are um, uh, look to all, to all the world, for instance, uh, as being hardcore Donald Trump MAGA supporters. They actually say that in their profiles. So we're very much looking at how they self-describe. And we're seeing their, um, you know, the, the, the Make America Great Again hashtag. We're seeing self-descriptions as, as Trump supporters, Trump 2020, and so on. Um, so in those sorts of cases, if we take this at face value, of course, then we can say these are very fringe, far-right Trump supporters. Um, at the same time, of course, there's always still a possibility that these accounts might be set up in order to embarrass someone like Donald Trump, in order to make them look like they're Trump supporters, but they're actually something different. And, uh, of course, there is some evidence, certainly from the 2016 election, that um, some of the influence operations that were run by, by Russia in particular were actually setting up these these fake Trump supporting accounts in order to galvanize genuine Trump supporters into in particular directions. Uh, so um, we can we we can't say for sure who's behind this, but we can certainly see the pattern of how they describe themselves. And and yes, the, we've seen the largest patterns tend to be around hardcore, uh, very partisan Trump support. 
and linked to, to that also some of the more conspiracy-oriented groups like QAnon, which is a, a sort of a, a now a global, I guess, group of, of uh, people who are seeing a deep state conspiracy behind everything that's going on in the world. Well, you make a, I, what I think is a very important point when you say or you've written that social media platforms are not all the same. There's a difference between Twitter, for example, and WhatsApp. And what I wanted to ask was, what's the difference, and why is it important to note these differences? Largely, the differences come from the way that the platforms are designed. So Twitter is a very flat and very open platform. You can follow anyone. Anyone can follow you back. You can follow Donald Trump. You can follow Scott Morrison and everyone else. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a global open public space and that's in part also the reason that is used especially around news and politics discussions so um what we see there is a quite a fast paced sort of discussion about current events and what's what's really what's currently happening in the world uh, very quickly self-organizing self-arranging people find each other people use hashtags of course to find each other as well to talk about whatever's going on in the world um, so very often Twitter is kind of a, a very early medium to pick up on any kind of stories and conspiracy theories and whatever else is going around, as well as genuine ordinary news, of course, going around as well. Um, compared to that, let's say Facebook tends to be much more organized around uh, strong social networks. You you follow your your friends, your family, your work colleagues and so on. So you, you kind of connect much more with people that you have a strong connection with in, in offline life as well. And Facebook also allows the creation of groups and pages. So we see often the formation of much more longer term communities uh, around particular interests and topics and maybe also geographically based and so on. Um, so in that kind of environment, you might get more uh, longer term engagement around whatever shared issues of interest people might have. But that can also then mean that this is a, a seeding ground for some of the fringe communities that we see as well, you know, the, the communities around uh, anti-vaccination or conspiracy theories more broadly, communities that are, um, that are around, based around racism or based around hate speech and so on, uh, and particularly operate there also in, in non-public and closed groups mm. where they can essentially do what they want because no one on the outside is seeing it and reporting it. So it's a question um, of, it's a, sorry, it's a question of uh, those, the groups you're just talking about, is it's a much more private space. It, it is. And, and, that's, uh, and that also then means, of course, that if you've only got like-minded people within these groups, um, then uh, people aren't really going to report if someone says something racist or someone shares some inappropriate information, if they all believe in the same things. And largely the enforcement of uh, problematic content on these platforms beyond any sort of algorithmic detec detection of the very obvious stuff. Largely, the, the reinforcement is based on users actually reporting on each other, reporting inappropriate content. And, and that's just not going to happen if you've got a group full of racists sharing racist content. They're not going to report each other. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, WhatsApp takes the private side even further. Really, it is all about private spaces, um, some fairly large private groups, but ultimately, all of it is is entirely private and, and invisible to outsiders. Unless you have joined a, a WhatsApp group, you, you, you're not going to see what's going on in there. Um, and that actually means that these spaces on WhatsApp are particularly uh, suited to the dissemination of, 
of rumors of conspiracy theories and so on. It's all Chinese whispers in many ways um, within these spaces. And I, I, this is the term, unfortunately, that, that's sort of been established, of course. Um, this is not meant to connect in any way to, to the, the current you know, origins of, of, of the crisis in China. Um, so it is all whispers and rumors and, and, and things going around in these spaces. Although, of course, some media organizations have started to move into WhatsApp as well and have, have formed their own groups. And possibly that can act as something of an antidote against the, the more um, information-free or fact-free spaces on WhatsApp as well. We've been talking at length about what I'd call the downside of social media during the pandemic, uh, but this isn't the full extent of your research. You've also mm. focused on some of the positives. And one of the interesting ones that you noted was the way social media was used in China to alert people to the virus. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've we talked about, obviously, the, the role that celebrities and others are playing in pushing perhaps some, some unfounded information, but many of them, uh, many people with large audiences in social media have also been using that very much for good, encouraging their followers that often number in the millions and tens of millions to do the right thing, to, to socially distance, to wash their hands, to practice appropriate practices that, that are necessary now to deal with this virus. Um, so uh, these influences ultimately have a really important role to play also in in reaching perhaps audiences that mainstream media, that standard news does not necessarily reach. Um, and yes, in, in, in China, we've seen this early on, particularly as well as the, um, as, as the authorities perhaps weren't yet fully realizing or accepting the scale of, of this problem. Um, some others, you know, ordinary uh, social media users, some of the people from the hospitals themselves and others were already pushing out information, um, uh, warning their, their local um, citizens as well as the wider world about how significant this outbreak was and how, how potentially damaging it, it could be. Um, and then gradually as this moved to a more international kind of environment, we've also seen uh, the role of yeah of these influences, these global influences, in really pushing along the conversation, um, making it in some ways also less political by saying, well, whatever whatever you think of of specific leaders, we've all now got to do what the authorities are telling us. We've got to distance. We've got to protect ourselves. Uh, we've got to stop any practices that might be dangerous to ourselves or others. Uh, so where these influences are working in a constructive and, and, and socially minded way, they can be incredibly important in, in reaching a, a very large audience very quickly. And you might you might be more likely to, to actually follow their advice than to follow the advice that comes from some politician who you've never really much liked or trusted, um, even though they might be telling you exactly the same thing. I know your research has covered some, some of the other substantially beneficial ways that social media works. Is there another one that you could uh, tell us about that that struck you in in the in the process of doing your analysis. Mm, that's a good question. I, I guess I mean more more broadly, of course, uh, social media are really important spaces for news dissemination, for genuine news dissemination. So so news organizations have also, of course, adopted social media very uh, very actively um, as spaces where they publish their news, and and we've seen both in Australia and elsewhere, really good examples of, of mainstream news organizations really 
taking to social media spaces to both uh, share the the stories, the general the, the general articles that they publish, but also to engage with the audiences, answer questions, do Q and A's, um, you know, show a bit of the, the the work behind the scenes, perhaps, and really kind of explain um, why certain um, uh, you know, advisory, advisories are being put out, why the authorities are telling us to do certain things. Um, in Australia, of course, we've had, you know, almost the celebrity status now for people like Norman Swan and others at the ABC. And uh, that's, I think, in part also because the ABC has produced a lot of really good shareable content um, for social media that gets passed on and often actually gets passed on well beyond the um, the the normal reach of a news organization like that like that uh, now what we're seeing is that these news stories might reach the sort of the standard audience first but as people are passing them on further via social media um, these sorts of news stories also reach reach others in the broader social circle of of the sort of the first um, group of people who are passing them on uh, who would not normally follow the ABC or other news outlets who would not formally normally follow the news either um, so in many ways there's this this again this amplification going on of, of the reach of this content and that's of course incredibly critical right now because everyone really needs to know what to do and how to act properly in this case. Axel finally I'd like to ask this is a, a bit of a, a speculative question but mm. if, if you had one bit of advice that you would give to people so that they as it were could inoculate themselves against <laughs> the impact of the infodemic what sort of advice would you be giving them? In some ways, I guess my advice would be to really think like a journalist. Um, you know, when when a, a, a good, well-trained, proper journalist is encountering new information, the first thing they're going to ask is, is this coming from an authoritative source? Is it independently verified? Have multiple sources independent of each other actually reported this? Or is this a single, unsourced, unverified bit of information that still needs to be authenticated. Uh, and I think that's sort of what we need to do with ourselves. Well, all of us need to do with any kind of information that we see about this. Um, if it's just one single source kind of pushing a particular story, um, or if it can all be traced back to the one single source, well, do we, do we trust this? Should we trust this? Probably not. Once multiple independent outlets, organizations, uh, uh, sources are telling us the same thing, then probably we should start to believe it. And, you know, you can apply this, obviously, to some of the really outlandish conspiracy theories, but also to uh, some of the statements that even elected leaders like Donald Trump are making, um, where, where, too, we have to ask ourselves, well, is this actually fully sourced and referenced, or is this just something that's sort of off the top of his head at this point? Um, so the more we can, we can think like journalists in this kind of context, I think the more we can protect ourselves from... Uh, from the information ourselves, but also protect ourselves from passing on something to others, to our friends and family that may not be fully sourced and may not be fully accurate. And, and of course, and if we pass it on, then we may well harm these people that we're passing it on if they, if they act on that information. That was Professor Axel Bruns. He's in the Digital Media Research Center at Queensland University of Technology and he's been researching the uses and abuses of social media during the COVID-19 pandemic. That's all from us this week. A podcast of the show will be up shortly on the Communication Mixdown website, where you can find our full back catalogue of programs. We are here again next Monday at 6. 
Let's go out with Zach David and his Paul Simon influenced coronavirus song. problem is all inside your head she said to me the answer is easy if you listen carefully i'd like to help you in your struggle to be free there must be 50 ways to catch corona she said i really hate to give such attitude furthermore i truly hope my social distance isn't rude but i'll repeat myself At the risk of virus in my food, there must be 50 ways to catch Corona. 50 ways to catch Corona. You just go out to eat, Pete. Hang out at the pub, pub. Hands don't need to be clean, Gene. Hey, just listen to me. Breathe in the sneeze, Louise. Don't worry about that moist breeze. Just touch on your face, Grace. Share a ciggy with me. Oh, just go out to eat, Pete Hang out at the pub, pub Hands don't need to be clean, Gene It's all cool, you see Breathe in the sneeze, Louise Don't worry about that moist breeze Just touch on your face, Grace Let's share this ice cream She said it's all a hoax That nasty infectious curve And forget about this social distance if you have the nerve I said, I appreciate your advice But could you please explain About the 50 ways She said, why don't we both Just party hard tonight No respirators needed Anywhere in sight And then she coughed into my mouth And I knew that she was right There must be 50 ways to catch Corona 50 ways to catch Corona You just go out to eat, Pete Hang out at the pub, pub Hands don't need to be clean, Gene Hey, just listen to me Breathe in the sneeze, Louise Don't worry about that moist breeze Just touch on your face, Grace Share a ciggy with me Oh, just go out to eat, Pete Hang out at the pub, pub Hands don't need to be clean, Gene it's all cool, you see. Breathe in the sneeze, Louise. Don't worry about that voice breeze. Just touch on your face, Grace. Let's share this ice cream. <laughs> 